Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is the second installment of our book group, which is a discussion about investments unlimited. And we have one of our, one of the authors and uh, just a great all around DevOps enthusiast, John Willis in the call and part of the discussion. And as you might expect, while we, we do talk about the book and John gives us a lot of background and details about the book, we treat it with the classic Cloud 2030 uh, style and really bring in AI, large language, advanced DevOps thinking. We really take the topics in the book to the next level and frame it in the moment of the year where we're looking beyond even what the book had and into how the concepts of compliance, um, validation, team coordination, risk assessment are incorporated into the coming AI uh, changes in our landscape. Fantastic conversation, and I know you will enjoy it. Colin McNamara, a friend, you guys know Colin. He, he, read this, he wrote this really cool um, vector database implementation for building uh, proposals for um, mm. food companies to get VC. So I, when he showed it to me, I'm like, I'm coming to Austin, <laughs> you know, and, and we worked one out and I started out building one for my Deming book, you know, kind of a Deming meta space. Mm. And I realized the opportunity in the enterprise is incredible. The fact that you can sort of do the, um, Retrieval augmentation. Um, and so I've been literally for two months now, I've written about 10 really cool models. And here's the thing what you, my attention was I haven't coded this much in 10 years. I am like, and, and, and what's amazing, like these tools will not help you if you don't know how to code. Mm. You don't know how to code. Like, I, like the other day, I needed, you know, um, you know um, I needed a JSON object like four levels deep, an item. <laughs> And I literally, like, if you didn't know how to code, you wouldn't know how to ask that question. But I was like, I, I've got, you know, I went to chat GPTs, you know, it's just as simple. I said, I have, a, um, a, you know, a JSON object that sort of looks like this. How do I grab, you know, two fields? For, and even it was like a nested list. I mean, now I'm getting real technical, but like, like I, I asked it so particular, like I need the fourth level and I need to retrieve a nested list, you know, like a list within a list, two lists, two list elements within a list. Yeah. Right? And it literally wrote me to code and with the right names and everything, you know, and I'm like, this is, and then like, I had to do some bash stuff. Yeah. In Google oh, yeah. Lab, right. Like I forgot, like, how do I do, you know, the, the just simple stuff. And just, and the other thing is you don't have to feel embarrassed. Exactly. <laughs> like, how do I do it? You can't call a friend and say like, you know, how do I do a block comment in Python? Like, you don't yeah. know like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> check yeah, exactly. He doesn't yell at you. <laughs> It's it, it, it's it's always quite quite polite, and it, it, no, that's that's really quite nice. And and the other the other thing and the other thing that of course you you encounter is just like working in you know Silicon Valley or any of the major places where you've got this kind of population of experienced developers, software engineers. If you catch one on a Monday morning after a really bad weekend. Uh, you know, that's when they that's when they hallucinate, you know, and and to your point, John, if you don't know what yeah. you need and you don't if you can't evaluate the response that's coming back. Right. 
you're you're out of luck because it's not going to work for you. Yeah, well, no, that, that was like your that was like your article, Rob. That I just uh, I didn't have time to really read it in depth, but I yeah. perused and you were mentioning. Uh, first of all, great job on that. It seems like uh, we've we, there's been some cross pollination in our thinking, as it turns out. Definitely. Uh, but you were me- you were mentioning the application of LLMs to to writing uh, 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 test scripting and. Yeah. I was thinking about that, uh, and and now I'm thinking it's actually a bigger thing. Is is that you know, Copilot AI really good for helping you you know come up with some like a like John your case. Uh, I was also thinking like reg, regex as like oh, um, that would be a great app. I haven't oh, played with AI in re- regex, I but have, yeah. that seems- you should you should because it's like, yeah. So like, uh, a- uh, but. But like Rob was calling out this idea of this sprawl of all these tests that LLMs are generating, and it, it, it screams out the need for a governance framework or an or, or an architectural framework for establishing that, and it, and it's just like. we don't have that today and i was thinking about like my stuff like the data fabric stuff where we're using strict policies to define data flows that we need the same sort of meta language to interact with ai and testing and it kind of goes back to the whole idea is that as we go up the stack and you go from entry-level coding to enterprise architect and software architect there ai's not up there yet there's no there's no replacement yeah. for well architected software yeah. at this yeah. point this has been my focus so i just wrote an article on a tech strong called the the rise of shadow ai and i'm paralyzed giving the sort of parallel of what happened with uh, shadow it during the cloud era and then how devops was a sort of a form of of um, guard railing that to a certain extent, right? Allowed people to have the speed, but, and I, I, my, my argument is, you know, and it's based I'm going to build my next business on is you got to, we have to convince CIOs that they don't need to own the business portion of it, but they're going to have to own the sort of the, like the way they needed to own cloud, you know, and infrastructure, because this is an infrastructure problem. These are very complex dependencies. Um, 80 to 90% of all this stuff is open source code. So you have the sort of nightmares of dependency hell and, and uh, vulnerabilities. Um, everybody's building their own. Mo- I see this right now. I got friends at like, you know, Disney and, and they're all building in a company right now, a large corporation, you probably have 200 variations of the same model. Yeah. So, yeah. With Definitely. All, and you, you know, once you start playing with this, you can see that there's so many decision points you can make you know, whether you're using LangChain, if you, what model are you using? What, you know, how, what form of prompt engineering are you using vector data? I mean, like all this is going to have to be managed at a, at a global scale. So I, I think I'm trying to make the argument that there's, um, you know, I think there's a potential DevOps-like approach. And I know that MLOps and AOps, but I don't know that, I think these models are completely different. And um the other yeah, thing I yeah. think is really interesting, I want to explore, and I'd love to get your thoughts is, um, you know, sort of like, I think borrowing some of the domain-driven stuff, you know, the DDD stuff for like, how do you think about 
the business process of creating, um, you know, sort of knowledge gathering or whatever this sort of thing mm-hmm. that you call it. Anyway, so yeah, I've been so, thinking a lot about all this. Yeah, I, I would actually love because what what you're describing. So you know, and the the topic of the day is to go through and talk about you know investments unlimited. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, and I think what you know, since you've written that book, you know, a lot of you know things things are are progressing from LLMs and and data governance and technical debt, um, you know, and so, you know, I, I think the book stands on its own very well from a governance and, you know, adding in the checks and, and the teamwork and the collaboration. I think it, one of the things that'd be fun for us is to actually do exactly what you're doing now, which is take, um, assuming everybody, I mean, I'd be happy to go more in depth on the book itself, but if assuming everybody's read it, Start looking at you know where how do the how do what do what we see going on in these AI techniques and what's yeah. happening oh, help address this gov- you know these governance automated governance issues. So Rob, why don't I tell everybody about the book, where it came from, what we did, what we tried to accomplish, what what Please. was in parallel, what was happening with actually a couple of banks, and and then I agree. I think that the, the what I was just talking about is like the infrastructure, the operations are going to have to own this this sort of LLM stuff, and, totally. and just like you know, like risk control and all the things that you do um, for audit. So um, if you go back to like 2018, so I you know I was fortunate enough to get to know Gene Kim really well, and um, you know while he was about halfway done with the uh, Phoenix project. Um, I ran in, he was at the first DevOps days in the U.S., right? And so I was on a panel with him and kind of, it was a sort of funny story where, you know, Patrick was moderating a panel. It was me, Gene, and somebody else and two or three other people. And, and Patrick made a little thing about me being old. Now, this is like, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and uh, and Patrick said, uh, Gene said something, I already didn't look that old. He looks, you know, and I said, thanks, buddy. So I get off the panel and uh Damon says, you know who that was sitting next to you? I'm like, I don't know, panel guy number three. I don't know. And he <laughs> says, oh, we're seeing Kim. I'm like, no, I love that guy. He's, you know, this is how dumb I was, right? I like, I, I was on a panel with him and I knew him, but I didn't know I was on a panel with him. And then we agreed to meet at South by Southwest. And he told me about the Phoenix Project and, and, and the goal, you know, how it was built on the goal and all this stuff. And, you know, and we immediately started talking about like a handbook. You know, because, um, you know, like, you know, like if you're going to have this novel, people are going to say, OK, great. Now, what do I do? So and then me, him and Patrick and ultimately Jez wrote Dallas Handbook. Um, but um, but one of the things that Gene started doing is inviting all the speakers from DevOps Enterprise Summit to Portland, you know, every spring to work. It actually started out with a survey at the end of the first DOS, DevOps Enterprise Summit. And we took all the survey things and about 30 of us looked at those and we started thinking like, what can we do? And we started writing papers and they're called forum papers. Mm. Revolution. And so, um, you know, did it, and that's where I met uh, Topo Powell, who was first fellow at Capital One. And um, I know this sounds a little boring, but I'll get to the point. <laughs> the uh, I, I got to know Topo and Topo is this incredible guy. Like he was the first fellow at Capital One, I should tell you. He was on the team that invented mm. the uh, jar file. Right. Like, I mean, this is a guy that goes way back in sort of industrial Java. Right. And and uh, PhD, brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, we just started, you know, collaborating and talking about stuff. And and I started working with these large corporations, you know, doing what I call qualitative analysis and 
And I keep hearing these horror stories about like not only security, but how dysfunctional the three lines of defense was and, and the, the disconnect between IT, second line, and third line, right? And so I wanted to... Um, Portland of this is I thought top. I'm like, it can't be this bad. He goes, it's worse than you think it is. <laughs> so in 2019, we wrote a paper called DevOps Automated Governance Reference Architecture. And the idea was, could we, so we originally started talking about blockchain and then we realized that's a terrible idea in a bank for a number of reasons, right? <laughs> but the idea of creating digitally signed immutable evidence on the things that you do so that when you get to an internal audit, mostly internal audit, but works for external audit, when you get to an internal audit, it's not a subjective conversation. It's not a ServiceNow record that says, I did this and this and that and that. And, you know, and, you know, like, don't ever believe what I said, whatever. But if you really don't believe me, go look at a log and go, good luck trying to find it. Right. Um, and so what we tried to do is take a simple sort of Java, get customer ID. And we didn't write any code. We just wrote a reference architect. And said, mm -hmm. like, what if we took a simple sort of microservice that turns into a container image called get customer ID, and we could create these sort of digitally signed immutable breadcrumbs. I did this, I did this. And so on that project was Courtney Kisser at Nike, it was Topo Powell, it was John Restatowski, who ran uh, PNC's, you know, basically all release engineering there. Uh, Sam Guggenheimer, who literally wrote, ran infrastructure at Microsoft forever. So it was this incredible team. Oh, and another guy who ran uh, Marriott's infrastructure for, you know. And so this, this um, not well-known paper is this manifesto of like 70 or 80 what we call attestations that you could automate in an immutable, in, you know, digitally signed immutable format. And uh, the gentleman, John Rezatowski, who was at PNC Bank, went back and he built the system over two years. He literally took the reference architecture, hired some consultants internally to the point was by the time we got to 21, he was um, he literally the whole bank was running on this system that created digitally signed immutable evidence, um, you know, for so based on the commit, like the whole thing. Right. And in 21, we decided to do a version two of that reference architecture. So we invited back some of the same people, but a couple of new people. And and some of the people that were working on this in PNC, and and Jason Cox too at Disney at this point, and and we sort of came out like they we usually have three days to sort of come up with your um, your wireframe, and then you got like three months to finish the paper. So it's all volunteer, and um, and so like the first um, day we sort of came up with this idea, and like and we realized you know what that first book was incredibly boring. <laughs> this one is going to be equally boring. And, and somebody had the idea that why don't we turn it into a short story? And I'm like, if we're going to do that, let's do a Phoenix project model. Let's create that sort of tension between the, uh, you know, the, the sort of mentor mentee. And, you know, um, and so we, we literally created a story. Now it was really the PNC bank story, but we created um, a, a fictional company you know, called Investments Unlimited, a little bigger than mid-size, but not a monster bank, just so we didn't have to get too complex on the infrastructure portion of it, right? So you can, and um, and we wrote the story that basically PNC did of how, and so the, the interesting thing, if you read the book, um, the first thing that happens, and I think this is, there's a couple of hilarious things that came out of the book. One is, you know, it starts off with the CEO, she gets, um, she gets a call from the OCC, 
that they're going to get what's called a, a matter requiring immediate attention, right? And those are for some banks that's like, you know, drop everything, shift around, let's get this. And 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 the way it works, and, and the beauty was we had a, a few bank people there, so they knew the way it works is you get this sort of hey, this is gonna happen unless you do something. You know, sort of a courtesy call. And so she grabs everybody in the DevOps community, puts them all in the room, and then and says, wait a minute, I thought we were doing DevOps. Why did I get this call? And and the one of the guys is like, oh yeah, we forgot to tell you, DevOps is not really security, you know. And and so they go through this whole um, discovery process of like, what's in the MRIA? I think they do get the MRIA. And then you know, like like how would we sort of address this in an efficient, you know, now that it's you know 2021. You know, and we're working on 20, 25 year old models for this stuff. You know, how would we do it now? And this is what PNC did. Like, you know, they had to kickstart with the the paper. And so we we explained that story. And one of the more fascinating things of the story is um, we're about half. So we we finished the paper in like the three month time span. And then Gene came, called me and said, we want to turn this into a book. I said, let me call the team. You know, I'm sure most of them were, ne- you know, for never, never authored a, you know, a published book. And uh, I called them. Everybody's like, yes, absolutely. Thank you, John. You know, and uh, and so we went ahead and um, they gave us like another eight months to sort of complete it as a book. Um, and um, but one of the amazing things about halfway through the book and we did this through COVID. We did this through Log4J. That's the stuff that nobody even talks about. Like we we survived COVID, Log4J. You know, all this stuff was happening while we're writing the book, right? And it's part-time. You got to imagine, like, you got full-time job, you got families. Yeah. But halfway through, um, Gene hooks us up with um, the uh, Mitsubishi Financial, Financial. it's like MFUG or something like that, it, North America. It's a Mitsubishi bank, but it was the North American branch. And so in our narrative, on our own, we came up with the story of, that the Investors Unlimited had uh, 15 MRAs, which were like matters requiring attention. And that you sort of get away with a little bit, well, I can't do this now because there's an architectural change or this, right? And and then they get the the MRIA, which is like, hey, you know, you're not doing anything with these MRAs. So that was our narrative. Turns mm-hmm. out we get to talk to the uh, the CISO at this, and it was all off the record, but um, but it's it's public what happened to them. And um, they basically had 16 open MRAs that they ignored for 18 months, got an MRA, ignored the MRA, and got a cease and desist. They took away their license. They took away their banking license. If you lose your like if a patient dies in a hospital, you're still a hospital. If a plane crashes, you're still an airline. If you lose your banking license, you are no longer a bank. <laughs> like I'm not saying that like regulatory controls in a bank are more important in a life than lives. From a business perspective, that is a death penalty. Okay. And uh, and so it was just amazing that like the story we made up was turned out to be a true story. So the book came out, and um, yeah, and and it you know it's it's you know in some ways you could summarize it. I don't think it's a real accurate summarization that it's like if. The Phoenix Project is to DevOps, in a sense, Investor Sum Limit is to DevSecOps. But I will caveat one more thing, because one of the things that that we were after from get-go is how to solve the internal audit problem and all the toil 
and miscommunication between the lines. And what I try to tell people, and I think this is a problem in our industry, just because you think you solve the DevSecOps problem or you solve the InfoSec or the ITSec problem, you haven't solved the risk problem, the IT risk. Because it's two different things. I mean, you could have sneak, you could have all these tools, you could have an incredible reference architecture for all this stuff, which is necessary. But if you're still miscommunicating and you're not providing the right evidence, we call it like the difference between subjective and objective evidence. You know, I go into banks now where they'll have 40 or 50 people that should be in first line that are in second line. I mean, like coders, technical people. Hmm. and that are in second line. And the reason they're in second line, they don't trust the information first line. They really have to write code to sort of validate, check, double check. I mean, it's amazing how stacked Mm. second line organizations are in large organizations because because of this miscommunication. I talked to one bank where they they have 50 people in second line with God-like authority, God authority, Mm. right? Uh. I mean, that, that's just broken. And so I think one of the things we're very myopic about in our industry is we think if we buy, and I'm not picking on Sneak. I think Sneak's a great product. But if we think if we can create this incredible DevSecOps reference architecture, or we've got an amazing IT tech, if we're not protecting the brand, which is the purpose of second line, is the, the mediator between second and third line, which is in, 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 in its optimum state, should be the protection of the brand. And in general, there's probably nothing more important in an organization than protection of brand. Anyway, that's the, the story. Um, I think the question that you raised, Rob, is interesting is, you know, how, so this is a pipeline story or a workflow story. It doesn't necessarily have to be a software supply right, chain. That's right. But it could be because we've had people experiment with even, um, even like API development workflow, creating attestations of decisions you've made. So it can be used for really any workflow. It's an attestational model. So with that, if if to the discussion we were having earlier, if we could get more mature about not controlling what the business does from a generative AI perspective, but we could create this sort of infrastructure, allow them to have the speed, but allow us to have, and that's pretty much what my blog article is about, that uh, the rise of shadow AI. Anyway, that's the, the nutshell of the book. Got a question for you, John. Sure. Um, when you talk about, well, first of all, the whole notion of responsibility and accountability is really what you're talking about. And attestation is a, is a, about as good as we get. It's basically, you know, I'm putting my signature on this and I'm I'm saying this is what I did. So I'm right with you there. When you talk about risk, how broad in in the context of a bank are you willing to kind of extend that? And the particular thing that I've been working on with a reasonably new company, startup company, is model risk management in the banks. This is this is basically mandated for every bank that's got over, I guess, a billion in assets. Yeah, this you threshold. Have to, that's interesting that's too. the threshold. The thresholds of asset holdings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And model risk management 
is increasingly uh, a, a two-part issue. It's one, it's literally going through and, and, and validating the models. And the other is documenting them in accordance with the regulations, in accordance with the bank's policies, and doing this in a fashion that is yeah. not so expensive that yeah. you can't have as many of the models as you would like to have. We, we some of these banks up. have thousands. Yeah, no, we need to yeah. catch up on because there's there's a wealth. So when I was at Red Hat, so like I, you know, we wrote that paper before I got to Red Hat. I did three years at Red Hat with uh, Andrew Schaefer, Kevin Bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> three years. And, and and yeah, the it three years, man, it was three years. Uh, <laughs> now, but I couldn't get them to turn this into a product. I was like, I mean, literally just going in Chris Wright's office and like, like they, they don't think like a product company. Right. So, um, but there was a guy there um, that when I first got there, he was an IBM guy who did a lot of the stuff like what you do, but he does a lot of financial modeling and, and he was helping them do big deals, right. With OpenShift, big old deals. Right. And we started talking and I told him my ideas about this and, and how we could sort of, how could we quantify just IT risk and cost? And, and, and so one of the things um, I started doing, because I'm not a financial person, but I started looking at uh, 10Ks and I started looking at um, how much companies pay in fines, restricted business. They Most of that's disclosed. Now it's not, it's not clear whether it's IT or um, so. I, I started. It, it, it covers it covers too broad a, a range. But, but, but yes, go but, ahead. But if you see that, like you know, a corporation is losing you know eight hundred million dollars a year as almost a tax because they're sloppy on their risk. Yeah, that's so right. Maybe fifteen we or twenty. That. In fact, if you watch some of the recent fines, it's like you know we've you know we had GDPR and all the scare and all that. Now, all of a sudden, banks, there was a Swiss bank, got $80 million fine. Um, there was one just the other day. I mean, the fines are starting to happen, and, and they're going to go, they're going to increase with generative AI big time. Um, so I think there's incredible opportunity, particularly in a generative AI space, to start gleaming through that. To your point, compare it to bank. I almost have like a line chain of mm. like, what do we know? Mm. Um, you know, what What do we have internally and what's our risk policy and start massaging and really start replacing those incredibly brittle, uh, expensive models with very more simplistic. Um, yeah. This is this is what what I, I found really interesting, because in, in some ways it it feels very simple. What, what was described in the book, which is simply adding additional checks into a CI pipeline. Fun, fundamentally, right? Yeah, webhooks, basically. Just it's, webhooks. It's, it's webhooks and, and, and going into a CI pipeline. And and what they what you were describing in the book was ultimately very simple rules systems. The idea of being able to ingest a policy guideline with a large language model and then turn that into you know, hey, I want you to review this code with this, that, you know, your your policies become the prompt to do the review. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, so, so, and, and so you're, you're, you're just, you're adding in, hey, I need an expert. I need a security or compliance and governance expert to review this check-in to see if it, it complies with my code. And if it doesn't, please suggest um, ways that that could be improved. Right. Well, 
really there, are, there are a couple of issues. Yeah, I think one is. I, I, go ahead, Rich. Well, a couple of issues. One is um, writing code and putting systems together that are policy driven. And to John's point, I, I literally have one of my one of my big lang lang flow lang chain projects right now is taking policy OPA and you and defining policies at a very very really almost microscopic really granular level and apply and and building up a set of policies such that any call to any part of the system, APIs, internal, external, are, are basically mediated by a policy. And the, the AI is supposed to, first of all, generate these things in Rego, which is the okay. language in which the policies are, are written, and then goes through them all and says, are they in fact consistent with one another? Where do they collide? Yeah, and so it's in the construction and then post hoc, do we have any issues about where, you know, where things went south? What happened? How do you, how do you manage that? This I huh. think is a huge issue and has to be done. And I'm limiting it to something much more, much more declarative, and that is we're talking about uh, data management, data set management. So the whole provenance lineage issue, yeah. accountability, responsibility, kind of sourcing the, basically trying to assure the pedigree of any data that leaves the, leaves the factory here. Yeah, my, so, my yeah, I, I agree with you, Rich. I, I, I figured you were going to say pretty much what I was going to say. Uh, I, I, I would just extend that. You said very granular level with the policies. Uh, I, I take that further and and make it some a, a structured language approach. Like let's call it policy as code. Yeah, and absolutely. and that that becomes your prompt. As we start talking about using artificial intelligence to help us with the governance and architectural layer of the cake, as it were, yeah. right? So, there, so I'm going to use the word ontology. You know, blah blah blah. We've talked about that a bunch of times, so I'm not going to go into that. Joanne's laughing, so she knows what I mean. Uh, but yeah, we don't need to get into the philosophical discussion. Suffice it to say, it's very interesting. This sort of human machine interaction is 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 uh, it's the more effective it is 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 when the communication standard is is more precisely defined, uh, and we can go all the way to machine readable code, or you can write a language. Or, I mean, just an English sentence. Also has a structure of its own, but it's 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 lossy and it's noisy uh, compared to something that's more precise and more machine readable. So I think that 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 you, I mean, you, you hit it on the head. So yeah. anyway, 
Tyler, that's really interesting too, because I've been, so one of the articles I just finished is, um, is I created an article on retrieval augmentation, right? And I, I identified three prominent mechanisms for retrieval. One is using, integrating a search API with LLMs. So you do really interesting, it's this idea that you want to take a foundational model and augment it, right? Which is, this is where it gets really interesting. And so I three the three different um, sort of patterns, if you will. One is combining search. So I can take like I do something now. I just run a um, you know for those of you who don't know, I've got a book coming out August eighth. It's uh, on Dr. Deming, and uh, so I've been really driving promotion. So I run a, what I call a news runner model, where I literally search for any news on Deming within the last twenty four hours. I use the Google API search. I turn that into uh, PDFs. I load it into a vector data, you know, AI vector database. And then I have a template prompt that does a general summary. And then I list all the articles that came, you know, were listed from, right? So um, so that there's just so many ways that you can sort of inject the combination of the LLM and the embeddings with your information. So that's one. The second is just using pure vector databases. Like, in other words, um, you know, I took my book. I, so I use my book as the learning exercise. My book, I took the PDF of my book, loaded it into um, a vector database. Right. And then I said, said I, I, I've been, I put out a, give me the top FAQs, 10 FAQs. And it was brilliant. And it used my data. I mean, I knew this because it was my book. There was really no hallucination. And for the most part, it didn't like capture stuff like erroneous people who wrote nonsense about Dr. Deming. And then the third one is, I haven't had time to play with it yet, but it's on my sort of next to-do list. Is this thing called PEFT. It's a, it's, it's a model for, um, I, I, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's like a patching model to, um, to so it's sort of like retrieval, like a AI, you know, I'm sorry, uh, vector databases, except it doesn't steal prompt and tokens. You literally, like you're patching on, t- so you could take like a GT. P3-5 Turbo or one of the, the sort of well-known foundational ones, and you literally sort of build a new model that has sort of your front-end parameters in those parameters, right? And, and, and the advantage mm-hmm. of that over a vector database, from what I'm told, is vector databases actually allocate, um, you know, parameters in the prompt where this wouldn't. But here's the thing. The, the thing I wanted to, that you made me think about, Tyler, is so I've been doing all that in the back of my mind is like, that's cool stuff. But the really cool stuff would be when I'm doing that stuff, I, you know, especially if I'm doing like risk and policy and stuff like that in my organization, which isn't sort of, you know, like the English language of a bunch of words, like it's more strict and can be sort of trained better. So the real beauty of that is using some of those methods that then sit down and really train a very focused training on the this particular type of data. And is it param? Is is the P for in PEF have to do yeah, with yeah, hyperparameters uh, or parameter? Yeah, parameter yeah I'll, tuning? I'll pull it up here in a second. I, I'm just I can't even remember my kid's name. Oh yeah, parameter efficient fine. That's tuning. what it is. that's what it is. And and again, I it's I've done everything else in that article. Uh, I haven't, um, I just sort of, there's, it's so new that there's like, you know, there's really no code examples. I, I mean, I, I've even posted on discord I and mean, like, I, I can't find anybody yet that actually has a working model. 
Because I like to cheat. I don't like to be the first one in, right? <laughs> I like I like to be the third one in on stuff like this, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. but but yeah, but but I think the real magic is once we get good at that stuff, then you take that expertise of training. So now you've you've basically created like a citizen data data scientist structure, right? But you're still going to need at that point, like you get. You don't need like a thousand or a hundred, three hundred data scientists. What you need is a shorter group of really smart people who know how to train. So all that other stuff, mm. you think about all the expense of data science right now. Like is like you have to have hundreds of people that know how to write Python and know which library to grab this and would how would you do this? Like all the stuff that people who are experts in data science have grueled and learned and and dealt with dependency nightmares. They solved all that problem for me with things like LangChain. Because now I can run those models and I didn't have to learn any of that stuff. And the only time I learn even deeper is when LangChain fails. And then I got to find out, okay, what is this thing? Where does it come from? What is yeah. it? But so then I think like all the overhead that we've had in our industry for data science has been really people that just know Python libraries like the back of their thumb. And by the way, now a lot of that stuff's abstracted well i don't know the the the, i mean this is uh john this is one of the areas i've been focused on as 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 on the data side coming from cloud to data and one thing is uh the analogy i would draw would be uh when it comes to data and analytics and now that ai is has has evolved so much uh is that it's kind of like Data science folks are pre-industrial humans when it comes to manufacturing. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, they can spell agile with, you know, with a computer pull, you know, with Google pulled up on a Chrome browser, you know, I mean, it's, it's just crazy, right? Just the idea of operational efficiency with most data people, it just goes, just like that they hadn't had to deal with it and that's the point is the the yeah they're going to have to they're going to have to and and uh and it's yeah i i I was saying who diana was it when we were talking i i said i with this data fabric that i built it's like i'm selling devops in 2011 yeah, you know, because of that's where the maturity is in the data space in terms of operational and lean, you know, lean and agile uh, uh, processes and methodologies. It's it's just you know, uh, and there's so there's this huge knowledge gap that exists in in the industry. Um, and it's kind of funny, John, he said, I want to be the third one there. I'm like, yeah, after the last few years, I kind of feel like this, this, you know, being in front <laughs> is not such a good thing. Oh, no. I, uh, I, we I, all I, have our scars I, from that. I put something on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I said, Ruby gems has nothing on the data science Python library dependency map. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Like as bad as Ruby gems was for me. Uh, when it when something goes wrong in a lang chain model, I mean it. I mean, I, right now on the loader, which is I've been I've had to go now to lang chain source code to basically prove to myself they don't have a trace option in the code. 
There's no debug option in that code. I mean, like, to your point, Tyler, nobody in our world would create a massive infrastructure and not, like, first things first, make sure you have a debug and a tracer flag. Now, I don't know that there isn't one somewhere because it's a pretty complex solution. But as far as I can tell right now, there's no way to turn on tracing when you run uh, the, the, the Langchain uh, data loader, which is a nightmare yeah. for me because I'll have 10 PDFs and like the fifth one will fail because they're doing some wonky thing in it or there's some image that does some weird stuff and it just fails and I can't tell which one it is. Yeah. It gets... it. Part of this, John, is the fact that it's so new and the stuff has been, you know, going, they've been expanding it so quickly. The one thing you were talking about data loaders, document loaders. Yeah. Given how much of the documentation that is of value to us all is written in Markdown, their Markdown loaders are the worst. You have to build your own loaders. You have to go into Python and build your own loaders because the stuff that they've got available to you is is just crusty. One of the things I've been putting off, it's like if there's no trace, I don't know, I'll maybe put in a a pull request for a trace, but um, but like I'm like I didn't want to do this and I think I'm gonna have to is I'm gonna I'm gonna have to use selenium. And and so I'm going to have to write a whole module because Selenium can read like it, there's so much history there of reading stuff that it's seen every edge case there's ever been. So like <laughs> out of like a hundred documents where the the Langchain yeah. loader might fail twenty five percent of the time, Selenium is going to probably fail less than five percent of the time. Yeah, and and oh, that why? that that kind of things makes sense. That makes I mean yeah. That's the way this is going to be an accretive model, an accretive. And uh, I think I, I, I agree with you. Right now, one of the the greatest boons on the planet is 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 Langchain. It has just made it so much easier and so much better to prototype ideas, change them up. It's, it's make great- comparisons. I don't know if it's going to survive, but it's it is the right. It, you know, Damon has this really cool operation. He says it's sort of the vagrant of generative AI. So vagrant, <laughs> nobody uses vagrant anymore. Right. But vagrant was absolutely necessary. Yeah, all of us with Chef and Puppet and all those things. Like I could have never gotten jump started on all this stuff. With I mean, I mean, some people could, but like vagrant was like the medicine I needed. To be able for orchestration, to, yeah, and for it, puppet it, and chef and infrastructure's code. I mean, I would the work I would have had to do would have been beyond my sort of mental capacity or scope. Yeah. And and Vagrant just made like all those glue things so simple. And today, Vagrant is non-existent, basically, right? right? So I think there's a possibility, and this is Damon's point, is that lane chain might be that point in time. And over time, we're going to figure out, like, that was great. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I'm going to write my own version of this. Yeah. And and it, it's not it's not un, it's not unthinkable. And remember, I mean, it's bare, it's it's barely what, six months old? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's crazy. It's oh, that's the other problem is I mean, I and the other problem is they make changes so fast that like literally I had a model that was working for like a month and a half and it just stopped working. And and here's the weird thing, like this is stuff you guys are all gonna hate. I, I asked on Discord, I looked all over, there was some people who were sort of having the same problem. You know, one person said the solution was on you know, in your model uninstall Langchain and reinstall it. Well, that was nonsense and didn't work. And so I just moved. I knew there was some order of the imports. So literally, I, I the import that was failing, I put it right after the pip install, mm-hmm. and it worked. I have no idea why it worked other than I moved the order. I mean, this is stuff that we used to do like back in like the it 80s, right? Where, yeah. you know, if you haven't worked with a product called SaaS, right? Like, there was a bug one yeah. time, and the answer was put in, um, put in five semicolons, and it guarantees it flushes the buffer. Like, no, <laughs> how do we work a product where the answer is move a line, you know, ten paces earlier, and it works? Like, no, no. There's dependencies buried in all the on these systems. So, yeah, I mean, the mixture of how things get loaded, right? Like, it's just, it's, it's. it's do you, so, do you, do you think that at the end of the day that some of some it you know does does ai strengthen or cause you to rethink what you were laying out from a compliance perspective and investments unlimited i mean i i think um rob i haven't been uh, patrick Tabar was in amsterdam and you know I, he said yeah. from a comment he said i haven't seen you this excited about a technology since you worked at chef <laughs> he's right yeah. like yeah. i i'm literally on bus rides i'm like finishing code and like this stuff i um, I, I'm all in. I think, you know, there's a doomsday scenario. There's definitely a lot. I don't really think there's a doomsday, but there's there's definitely a lot of negative stuff that's going to happen. Yeah. But right now, I think right now, be perfectly honest with you, I think coders are going to disappear. I think, you know, organizations that have had mm-hmm. that have like five or six hundred people. I mean, think about this. You think honestly, and I'm probably wrong on this. That you're going to need three in two years from now, three thousand people or five thousand people are going to go to KubeCon to learn where how to put where to put commas. I mean, if you think about it, the majority of why you go to KubeCon is to learn how to write YAML or where YAML fits with this or does that, right? Like, like if you start playing with ChatGPT or these models, like I don't need any guide. But John, they're not going to go away, and they're not going to be. No, it's Jevin's paradox. Yeah, yeah, they're no, gonna I'm, they're they're gonna turn into coaches yeah. for the AIs that are writing. Yeah, no, it, it's it's clearly gonna be a yeah, Jeff for the Herbert Simon. Uh, yeah. you know, that is, I mean that that's always the case, and I know that's true. But what I'm saying is, so is everything's going. It's like the Simon Wardley, like you know, situation but, normal. Everything is going to change. I think in two years from now, and one of the things I think is very dangerous right now is okay. trying to create a point product on a solution. Because I do think I, I just I think that we don't we have no idea what a CIO is going to be asking over the next two years, and how they're going to start thinking about this complexity, and uh, you know, and I think there's a there's a window of like the vagrant ish thing of we're going to have to learn in a transitional state, because within the next two to five years, the way an IT an IT organization within a large company is going to look. But this goes to your, go ahead, go I, ahead, Todd. 
I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to take a dissenting view here uh, for the purpose of just exciting the conversation, which is... And, and you, Tyler, you're assuming I think I'm smart, right? So Because I'm really not. <laughs> whether, it's, whether it's two, five, or ten, I, I agree with you generally, but the way it's going to happen is there's going to be 2% of the haves and 98% of the have-nots. Yes, and what's yes. going to happen is... It's, it's CIOs are not going to be able to contend with the complexity because what made them successful in their careers will not make them successful in this new age. Because what it's going to do is you're going to have all of these players that are not really changing, that are just, you know, using shiny objects and talking, not actually making any changes in the organization. And that's going to accelerate the disruption cycle at the industry level. So we're going to have this. This is actually going to lead into a like wholesale disruption of multiple industries because of those two percent that are going to be exponentially more capable than the other ninety eight percent. And frankly, I have no idea what that's going to look like. Right? Just said what I said, and here I was just thinking about like in the early days of DevOps, I'd go into a CIO. And I'd say, you know, not massive, mostly sort of mid-tier. And I'd say, there's a 3% club and there's a 97% club. This is like when we were just, like, once we saw the light of what DevOps could do to your organization, for your organization, I'd literally have this conversation with the CIO and say, you know, do you want to be part of a 3% club? Or do you want to be part of a 97% club who's going to go status quo and ignore this stuff? Because you can make that choice right now. Today, it's now probably a 70-30 club, you know, 70% DevOps, right? But but the point was, there was a time 10 years ago when I was first talking about DevOps, where there was a real, I was like, this is a gift. Like, listen to me right now. You can be part of this amazing club that can get so far ahead of everybody else. And it wasn't just DevOps. It was cloud. It was, you know, the precursor to cloud native. It was all those things. But but I think what you just said, I think it's the same thing. I think there's going to be like a 3% club and, and the 97, a big portion. And we even see it right now. I see some of the most brilliant people I know who are like, ah, Genevieve stuff is nonsense. You know, oh, it's going to make all the wrong decisions. It it hallucinates. It's like, you know, you can have a, you can have a negative or positive bias. Like you can have a bias where you say, this is the greatest thing ever. Don't even tell me. Or you can have this like bias that says it's terrible. Ignore it. And like, I don't want to be either of those. Yes, so let me interject a question. Sure. What makes you think there's going to be a CIO in three to five years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because there won't be. Yeah. That's, oh, that's it. Oh, man. That was a monkey wrench to throw in at the end of this this discussion. Well, I couldn't get a word in edgewise before. Oh, so, you know, I mean, th- this is really the, the question because if you, I live in a world of manufacturing and supply chain, that's my career path. But, and after 30 years, I can tell you that there's a lot of problems that still have not been solved. Um, that being said, on the AI side, particularly, the influence of the domain-specific knowledge is going to be the first biggest disruption to hit now that Chat GTP and Claude 2 and all of its 
lookalikes are out there in the large language models because it's the small language models that are going to take over very, very quickly so that people can operationalize them, not so much at lower cost or at greater speed because you still have the issue of GPU and NVIDIA owning the market. But irrespective of that, those, those language models are being driven from the ground up by the industries themselves. There is one in banking. There is one in finance. There is one in manufacturing. I talked to somebody at Boeing and at Lockheed yesterday. Both of them are part of this sort of consortium that are trying to put together the specific derivative language models that they need for their industry to be able to fast track by two years. And the first thing that both of them said, and they're both CIOs, is we are not going to be in the same role. We will become either, you know, another C acronym, but IT will cease to exist as we know it because we're fusing AI from the lowest level to the highest level of abstraction. That's the game plan. We got funded for it. We're doing it. So you have two behemoth corporations that are going to lead the way for, let's say, aerospace and defense. I can tell you that in the banking sector, there are two as well, but they're all starting to populate themselves. And they're looking to do an overall redo, not only of their um, uh, enterprise architecture to be able to bring in the AI, but from the infrastructure um, point of view, Almost everything. I talked to someone earlier this morning uh, abroad who's written up or trying to bring a product to market that is AI-driven networking based on not the loads, but latency only. Yeah. How fast do you need that data? Period, full stop. You know, it's interesting that uh, Facebook uh, about 10 years ago, or maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago, the head of the engineering department said that we don't, we we don't care. Uh, we really don't care about any metrics. I, I heard Werner Wagel say this at Amazon. Says the only metric we care about is water rate. And it, at Facebook, the network engineer said the only metric we really care about is packet loss. And he said we can triangulate everything we need to know by packet loss. And to your point, I think like you can, like if you can pick those sort of true north variables. Hey, um, the other thing, uh, John, I'm going to have to head out. I'd love to have your email. I'd love to talk to you. One, I'd like to share my Deming book with you, given that you supply sure. And then two, um, everything you just said was absolutely fascinating. So I, I can connect the two of you. Okay, that would be brilliant. The, uh, the, I, we do need to wrap up because I'm getting pinged for my next meeting. I, I, I will add a word of caution, I, which I think comes from the IUI book, the Investments Unlimited book, which is, that succeeding in one area and improving velocity in one area without considering the other components in the chain actually creates significant risk. And so I, mm-hmm. I think I, I think we part, you know, to me, a takeaway from here is you're not there, there, there is no free lunch. If, if you do better for yourself and you don't you don't integrate it into the other other parts of your systems, you're in trouble. Um, but that's a whole, we'll, we'll say, we will keep coming back to this theme because I know this group and we will talk <laughs> about it in the future. Um, we do have a meeting scheduled next week and the week after that we are off, or at least I'm off. 
So. <laughs> hey, great invite me, Rob. I'll definitely like to join this. Was, this was pretty awesome. Um, you got it, John. I'll add you to the, to the group, and that will let you see Joanne's uh, email, too. I'll, I'll try not to be uh, sort of a, an oxygen hog next time, but, uh, you know. That, you know it's, fire beware. <laughs> we, we we want everybody's opinions, and that's yeah, part of what we do. All right. It was great. Well, it's, it's, it's also good for folks that are new to the group to you know i want to give them lots of airplay yeah, yeah. so that they they feel welcome and we get to understand you uh a little better in this context brilliant all right it was great uh, i really enjoyed this so thank you thank you Joe. Uh, good to see you thank you bye, bye. All right. bye. bye. wow what a fun conversation definitely one in which we did not reach the end of our discussion here. Uh, there is so much going on with Investments Unlimited and what appears to be simple compliance and audit, but really turns into a much deeper thinking about how do we actually know that we're following our own policies and procedures and what simple steps we can do to really radically change the outcomes from that perspective. I highly recommend you take a look at the book. Um, you didn't need to have read it uh, for this conversation, but uh, it's definitely a good one. And if you are interested in other book discussions, we have um, a new one coming in the fall. Um, and uh, I think we're already scheduled out into winter and possibly spring with book discussions. You can find out our whole agenda and schedule at the 2030.cloud. I hope you will sit down, choose to be a part of the discussions. Uh, if you've listened to this far, you're definitely a dedicated listener. Uh, but we also want to hear from you and have you be part of the conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.